Father, we give thanks to you today for this wondrous mystery, which we know so well, and yet we could never exhaust the growth of our knowledge of the gospel. So we praise you. Thank you, Father, that the gospel is not just a message by which we are saved unto eternal life, but it is, by your grace, a call to a changed life. And by your Spirit, we have the power to see that brought about. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to take these things seriously, to be concerned not merely for what we believe in our hearts, but how we behave with our bodies and our mouths and our minds. And though, Father, I pray that you would refresh us this morning on your word. And may we leave today resolved that we will seek your pleasure in our lives and desire to become more like Christ than we ever have before. And Lord, these things we ask in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. We are in Colossians chapter 3, and we are picking up where we left off last time. Let me just begin by saying that several years ago, when I was traveling to teach in Russia, I had dinner with a young Russian leader, church leader, named Eugene, who to this day is uh, the lead pastor of Moscow Bible Church, thriving Bible church there in Moscow, mainly among young people. As we were sharing a meal together that evening, I asked him about his family and his background, and he told me that he was a third-generation pastor, and I wish I had time to tell you that story. And he had, he had been raised in Siberia because his grandfather was taken there and executed. He went on to tell me that while he was convinced that God had called him and he certainly wants to be serving in Moscow, Nevertheless, he and his wife hoped that someday they would be able to move back to Siberia. Siberia? I asked. Did you say you want to move back to Siberia? I mean, isn't it really, really cold there? In America, we have this impression that in Siberia, it's cold. To which he responded, brother, we have saying in Siberia. No such thing as bad weather, just bad clothes. <laughs> well, since that evening, I've had the privilege of visiting Siberia a couple of times, and I can tell you from experience that if you ever plan to visit Siberia in winter, you will want to leave your Texas wardrobe at home. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul wants to talk to us about a change in wardrobe. He's been teaching us that when sinners move into the kingdom of Christ, they should leave their formal vestments behind. And Paul is using the metaphor of clothing to address the way believers live. God's expectation, Paul suggests here, is that we will don new attitudes and new behaviors that are consonant with the new kingdom in which we now live. We know this is a major theme in Paul's letter to the Colossians, and 
and frankly, in his other letters as well, but certainly here in Colossians, because after 34 verses of telling us what to believe about Christ, he now transitions into how we should live for Christ. And we see this shift very clearly if we're paying attention when we get to chapter 2, verse 6, which we've already talked about. This is where Paul declares these words. Therefore, since you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And then he shows us in very specific terms what walking or living in Christ looks like. For clarity, we could pose it as a question. What specific virtues should characterize a man or woman who lives in union with Christ? What should your life look like when you are in union with Christ, which, which really is addressed to all believers, because if you are a child of God, you are in Christ. Or, another way of saying it, what new attitudes and behaviors are befitting those who have moved into this new country, the kingdom of God's beloved Son? And so using the metaphor of clothing, then, he, he tells us in chapter 3, verse 5, or beginning there, that we must strip ourselves of the old vices. Can I, let me just stop right there, because depending on what scripture you're reading, it's, it's either Christ stripping us or it's us stripping us. It's that whole thing in sanctification where we are commanded to do it, and yet God is doing it. We must strip ourselves of the old vices of sin and put on the new virtues of godliness. He even offers a motivating rationale for doing so. Paul implies in chapter 3, verse 12, that while you were once hostile enemies of God, engaged in all kinds of evil, now by the atoning grace of Jesus, you are God's chosen people, set apart for himself, holy and loved and loved by him. This, beloved, is your new status before God. This is now he th how he thinks of you, which is what union with Christ is all about. It's how God thinks of you and therefore how he treats you. This is your new identity as children of God. And Paul actually hinted at this all the way back in the beginning of his letter in this famous prayer of the Apostle Paul that we often share in texts with one another to encourage each other. And in this initial salutation back in chapter 1, he tells us how he prays for the Colossians. Specifically, he says, I pray, verse 9, this is chapter 1, I pray asking that you will be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that, here's the purpose statement, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. So, while it's going, to, it's going to be a book about the preeminence of Christ, the loftiness of Christ, the excellencies of Christ, nevertheless, all of that is moving us somewhere. It's moving us to a life that is pleasing to him, a changed life, a changed life way of thinking and behaving and interacting. By the sovereign grace of the Father, 
You have been elevated, listen carefully, you have been elevated to a class of people that is uniquely precious and privileged in the heart of God. He doesn't think of everyone the way he thinks about you. You are his bride. You are his child. Paul is simply saying that with the new relationship with God comes the blessed expectation that you will also have a new relationship with sin and a new relationship with virtue. And so off with the old clothes and on with the new. In Paul's mind, such an expectation is not a burden, but rather it is a huge privilege. A huge privilege. Not everybody gets to wear the wardrobe that you are called to wear. Listen, if, if you were a college football player and suddenly found yourself drafted by the Dallas Cowboys and given a contract that's going to make you rich for the rest of your life and your head coach comes into the locker room and approaches you with the uniform, he hands you the uniform and you say, what? You expect me to wear this jersey? I mean, I, I would think that that I could dress however I want. I mean, come on, that's ridiculous. And yet, that's, that's how believers think sometimes. The jersey you wear identifies what team you're on. And so it is with those who are identified with Christ. We don't pursue righteousness and holiness to earn a spot on the team. Rather, we pursue righteousness and holiness because we're so privileged to be a part of the team. We are graced with the privilege of being a part of the team. This is not something that we work for and we, we clawed our way in. Rather, it is something that has been given to us freely by the, the sovereign grace of God. He drafted us onto the team. And so, what does the jersey look like? What are the parts of the uniform of a Christian? Well, last week we talked briefly about the virtues of compassion, kindness, humility, and meekness. I think I'm going to, looks like I'm going to be hitting these four at a time. And having covered these first four, we now come to the virtues of patience, forbearance, forgiveness, and love. Now, I'm going to take the first three as a group. It doesn't mean it's going to be shorter. <laughs> but I think these three go together, and you could probably make a case for more than that. So here we go. Since we are God's chosen people, holy and beloved, verse 12, who have been set apart for himself, we should put on, as part of our uniform, patience. Patience. Patience describes a person who does not get angry with others. This is a virtue that doesn't let the foolishness of other people or their selfishness drive one to cynicism or despair in the relationship. It empowers a person to respond to undesirable or even sinful behavior without sinning in return. It is also an attribute of God, by the way. He is patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to the knowledge of the truth. He is patient with sinners every day. Praise God. That is true, right? Praise God. He's patient. 
Just every day, every day. I mean, and, and, and every Sunday that I come in here and I sit on the front row trying to sing and praise God and try to wrestle my mask off at the appropriate times. And, but I always plead with God, be merciful to me. I don't deserve this. I know that I'm not, I don't have this job because I'm worthy. And so he's patient with sinners. If he's going to get anything done through humans on this earth, he has to be patient. And he is. And praise God he's patient. Secondly, forbearance. This is the word that is sometimes translated long-suffering. It's a virtue that enables a person to bear injury and insult for a long time without resorting to retaliation. Forbearance keeps a person from having a short fuse or a hair trigger. And that brings us to the third virtue in this set, namely the virtue of forgiveness. The virtue of forgiveness. And this is kind of where we're going to camp for most of the rest of our time. For our purposes this morning, it's important to understand that Paul's not speaking particularly to individuals. Rather, he's speaking to the church, that the pronouns here are plural. When he says you, he doesn't mean you individually, per se. He's, he's speaking of you, y'all. This is Paul's way of saying y'all. <laughs> or, uh, and, and really in the Greek it comes across like this sometimes, uh, all y'all. So all of y'all, all y'all listen up. In the original language, the root term for forgiveness, for forgiving, is charis, which in the Greek means grace. Some, some parents name their children charis. My wife's name is Chris, which comes from charis. It means grace. And so as we apply the virtues in the church, they're to be understood as graces, and especially this one, the grace of forgiving. You have received grace from God. Now you are to extend grace to others, even as you have received, freely received it. It is the grace of patience, or the gift of of patience. It is the grace of forbearance or the gift of forbearance. And, and these two other virtues often precede the grace of forgiveness. The grace of forgiveness. I find it difficult to imagine that forgiveness can be overemphasized in the church. Forgiveness is at the heart of the gospel. As you know, we were created and brought into this world to show the world what God is like, to show the world what Christ is like, to show the world what the gospel is like. I think it's rightly been said that we are never more like God than when we forgive. And honestly, it, it takes the strength of God to truly forgive. 
he realized that every time there is forgiveness, there, there is sacrifice. And Christ's sacrifice is the basis for it all. But it's a sacrifice for us because we are canceling a debt, which is what forgiveness means. We're canceling the debt. And I can't help but think every time I, I teach on this that in Matthew 18, you know, when after the, that passage on uh, church discipline, he talks about the steward who um, lost all that money from his king. And I don't know if you remember this, but the amount of money, it is estimated uh, in, in our dollars, was the equivalent of 250,000 years worth of daily wages. 250,000 years. You see what Jesus is doing? A little hyperbole. I mean, it's, it's like he somehow lost the gross national product of the country. And now it's time for him to pay it up. And he asked for forgiveness. And, uh, and he got it. And the king forgave him because he pleaded with him. It's a huge sacrifice. Huge sacrifice. Don't, don't even think for a moment that it won't cost you something. But never forget what it cost God to forgive you. This past Wednesday evening, I had the privilege of speaking to the core group of Christ Fellowship Bible Church, our new church plant that's scheduled to launch next month. And one of the exhortations I laid before them was this. I think this was about number five in my exhortations, five of ten. Number five was this. Remember that the number one killer of church plants is disunity. It's a well-established fact that most church plants never make it to their second birthday. But the thing that most often kills church plants is not poison politics or um, the criticism of culture or even the danger of disease. No, the one thing that usually kills church plants and churches, established churches, is sin that arises in the church between two people or more. Whether sin is swept under the rug it's left unresolved or unforgiven. It leaves everyone involved in an unreconciled state. And it doesn't take, take much time before the sheer unpleasantness of meeting with people with whom you remain unreconciled that you'll be driven to pursue comfort outside of the fellowship. Most, most people can only hang on for so long. And then they leave. And they, they come up with some notion, that some plausible idea. I remember, I'll, I'll tell the story about Frank Shannon. One time we were meeting with this couple, and uh, they were in such a situation, and they were going to leave the church, but they at least met with Frank and I back in the early days. And then we asked them why they were leaving the church, and they kind of went on this rabbit trail. And at the end of it, um, I said, well, why don't we pray? Frank, you pray. 
And Frank said, um, prayed something like this, Lord, now you know that we have no better idea why these dear folks are leaving Calvary Bible Church than we did when we first arrived. <laughs> I about fell out of my chair. <laughs> and then he just kept praying. And when he got done, he had a big smile on his face, and he shook their hands, we gave him a hug, and they left. But you know what? should have never happened. should have never happened. Not just in that case. I, I could tell you a hundred stories like that from 26 years of ministry here. That doesn't need to happen. There are reasons to leave a church. But sin between brothers and sisters in Christ is not one of them. But it is the primary reason people leave. Beloved, what I'm warning about is not something that I picked up in the latest bestseller on how to grow a healthy church. No, this is, this is the reality that I and the elders have witnessed over the past two and a half decades of ministry here. And we've seen it not only in our church plants, but even here at the mothership, even here. Can I just be pastorally direct with you for a minute? Listen carefully. Disunity caused by a failure to pursue reconciliation in the church is rebellion against the gospel. It is rebellion against the gospel. Because here's what the gospel says. All of your sin can be addressed and you can be reconciled to God and one another. And when you refuse to pursue reconciliation with one another, you're saying, I don't believe the gospel. I don't believe the gospel. I don't believe that God can do this. God is too weak to handle this problem. Maybe somebody else's problem probably smaller than mine, but mine's too big for God. Mine's greater than the cross. This unity in the church is a really, really big deal with God because it does so much damage to the bride of Christ and it does so much harm to the the reputation of Christ. And perhaps that's why there's so many verses in the New Testament that warn us against it. Titus 3.10, how about this pithy, powerful statement? Reject the factious man after the first or second warning. There, there's no process of church discipline here. You find someone who's intentionally causing disunity in the body, you warn them once, you warn them twice, and tell them to leave. Ah, I wish I had known that when I was a young pastor. In Galatians 5.20, here we find in the list of deeds of the flesh the following. Enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, divisions. Romans 16, 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division. You say, well, I didn't mean to cause division. It doesn't matter. Do you realize that in the Old Testament, the only sacrifices for sin that were made were sacrifices for unintentional sin. Most of our sins are unintentional. That doesn't mean that we're not culpable for them. Guard your heart, guard your mouth, guard your behavior. 
Guard the way you treat one another. Watch out for those who cause division, Paul says. Division can come from personal ambition. Division can come from differences of opinion. To mask or not to mask, that is the question. And can I just tell you, uh, I mean, uh, us pastors, as we talk about this, we, we, we laugh and we cry about this because every church experience has experienced this over the past four months. To mask or not to mask. Can I, can I just say to you that the whole mask question is only the circumstance. It's not the cause of any division. It is not the cause. It is only the circumstance. We have the same circumstance, two different people. One of them is responding in a manner that's biblical and godly and builds up the body of Christ, and the other one is the exact opposite. It's the same circumstance. The circumstance is not the cause. The mask is not the cause. Although a few minutes ago, I was tempted to not respond well when my mask wouldn't come off again. Division can come from personal opinion about things like music, politics, parenting. And it really doesn't matter what the source. The glorious news for the church is that there is a proven remedy, and it works. A hundred percent of the time it's tried. As long as both members or both parties are trying. Through the cross of Jesus, we have everything we need to preserve the unity that God has given us in Christ. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 4. In fact, you can flip back to Ephesians chapter 4. I'll help you track with me a little better. Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to pick up in verse 1. We're not going to read this whole section, but just a little. Uh, and, and as you hear me read this, you'll, you'll hear allusions to the same terminology in Colossians, because I think he wrote both of these letters in the same prison cell around the same time. He, so he says this, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is over all and through all and in all. Beloved, one of the best things you can do to help preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace is to become expert in forgiveness become an expert in reconciliation. You know what ought to be happening a lot in this church? And really does, at least I've seen it many times. When one person will come to another person and they'll say, hey, you know the other day when we were having that conversation, I, I, think, I think what I said was, was offensive. I'm concerned that I offended you. And can we talk about that? And the brother or sister says, I know exactly what you were talking about. It never even occurred to me. That kind of thing should be happening all the time. As long as you're telling the truth about it, it never occurred to you, because otherwise it's a lie. 
and it complicates the problem. And that happens a lot. I'm, I'm too godly to be offended. Get over yourself. This is so important, beloved. And I know in, in my marriage, so many times, Chris would come to me or I'd go to her and say, hey, you know that comment I made or that thing I did? And she would just honestly say, yeah, that, that was hurtful. Or, no, I, I, thank you, thank you, but no, no offense caused. And uh, no harm done, no sin, as far as I can tell. You know, having that sensitive spirit like that where you're pursuing it, and then find out there was nothing there, that's better than assuming nothing happened. And now there's an unreconciled state. I'm not saying that's easy. What I am saying is you have the Holy Spirit. You have the grace of God. You have union with Christ. You have the Word of God. You have everything you need. Now, we don't have time to work through all of the nuances of the biblical texts on forgiveness. There are many. If you want to hear a fuller and more practical treatment of the subject, then I'd encourage you to hop on to the Calvary Bible Church app and search for the word forgiveness. Look for uh, forgiveness, God's remedy for sin, and it'll be a full hour on uh, all of the major texts. For now, however, just listen. Listen to Paul's word here in Colossians 3.13. In addition to the other graces or virtues, Paul says, Paul adds, if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord, and here's the qualifier, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Uh, can I ask you a question? When you confess your sin to God, does he forget it? Does he forget it? You say, well, it seems to me the scripture says he throws it as far as the east is from the west. Yes, but does he forget it? And some people will say, absolutely, praise God, he forgets it. And I would say to you, well, that's a wonderful thought. But I think if you look in the book of Ezekiel, you will find this, that it's not that God suddenly has amnesia with regard to your sin. It's far better than that. Are you ready? He chooses not to remember it against you. And beloved, that's how God forgives us. That's how we should forgive one another. If you see that person and every time you see them or think about them, you think about their sin, choose to not remember it against them especially if they've already asked for forgiveness. And you have said, I forgive you. You've canceled the debt. Why do you keep chalking it back up to them again? The Lord doesn't do that. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. How does forgiveness come about? Well, it happens, briefly, when the person who has caused the offense allows himself to have an open and honest attitude about his sin before God, which is what I think 1 John 1.9 is about. It's not about being perfect. It's about having an open and honest attitude about your sin, which is why John will go on there and say, if we do sin, when we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. You just could be honest about it. Our problem is we don't want to be honest about what's true about us, that we are sinners and we tend to sin. 
And so the offending party confesses the sin to God, believing what the Lord has said, that he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Forget about that nonsense about you forgiving yourself. You don't have the authority to forgive yourself. But God can forgive you, and he will if you ask. The sinner then asks for fatherly forgiveness, and he receives it, and then he seeks out the person he believes he sinned against and humbly offers himself just as he did before God. He humbly owns his guilt, not with words like, I apologize, or I'm sorry, or I stand corrected. None of, none of those are an admission of guilt, but rather with words that sound like, maybe something like this, brother, I believe I've sinned against you when I, and then name the sin, try to name it biblically. And finally, he humbly asks for the very thing that he does not deserve by saying something like, will you please forgive me? Will you please forgive me? On occasion, I have said to my wife with tears, I need to ask you for something that I know that I don't deserve. And I don't even want you to answer me immediately. But I'm requesting that you would cancel my debt. And forgive me. It's so much better than I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It means I have sorrow that you were hurt by my sin. That's not helpful. And then Jesus teaches that the only answer allowable, perhaps after a few clarifying questions, is, <clears throat> yes, I forgive you. Or, one time I heard this, Christ has forgiven me, I forgive you. Beloved, this is forgiving as the Lord has forgiven you. And you know what? If, if I were a betting man, <clears throat> and I'm not, let's just be clear. <laughs> but if I were a betting man, I'd be willing to bet my house that there are more than one married couple or long-term friendship represented in this body of Christ at Calvary Bible Church where there is now distance, whose relationship seems irredeemably broken because they've not been willing to pursue forgiveness and grant it biblically, unwilling to humble themselves like on the day they first believed, when they cast everything upon the Lord in hopeless abandon. Maybe hopeful abandon. And this brings us, by the way, to the final virtue, the fourth, in our list for today. And that is love. Love. What has the power to motivate us to do the hard things in the church, like being patient, forbearing, forgiving? In a word, love. What is love? Well, we've discussed this so many times, I'm almost embarrassed to say it again. But I know this. I know that we forget. And so let me tell you one more time. If you've never heard this, you should write it down. It's very simple. Here is, here is a definition that I think is, is biblical. You could probably word it differently. But what is true biblical love? To love is to give what I have that you need because God wants me to, no matter how I feel. To love is to give what I have that you need 
because God wants me to, no matter how I feel. You know, you know what that tells me? If that definition is right, I can love you even if I'm not happy with you. I can love you even if there's distance between us. Because the root of this kind of love is not feeling. It's believing and doing. It's trusting God and doing. Giving what you have that the other person needs because God wants you to. How do we know this is a good definition? Well, John 3.16, for God so loved, this is the love of God, God so loved that he gave. What did he give? Gave what we needed. His only begotten son. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives. Here's, here's God's love. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. And what did he do? He gave himself up for her. He gave himself unto, unto death on the cross for her. Died to self. This is love. And notice how Paul speaks of it here. In Colossians 3, he says, And above all these other things, put on love. Above all the other virtues, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So if these virtues are the various parts of our wardrobe, love is the belt that binds it all together. Get it? In the fruit of the Spirit, it's named first for emphasis. In this passage, it's right in the middle. <laughs> Literally, right in the middle. And that's where love belongs when we're talking about a wardrobe. It wraps around your middle and binds everything together, Paul says. He adds these terms. In perfect harmony. Perfect harmony. And, that, and that's what we need in our churches. That's what we need in our marriages. It's what we need among our children. Where there is a lack of unity and the presence of repeated, constant unforgiveness and sin, I guarantee there's a lack of love. It's a failure to love at the root. It's a failure to love at the root. Again, I'm not saying that's easy. It's hard. And the hardest thing about it is you have to humble yourself. You have to be like Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not consider being God something to be held on to, but he emptied himself. And I'm not going to get into the theology there it doesn't mean he stopped being God. But for a little while, he set aside his privileges. He set aside his rights for you. He's willing to cancel your debt. And not only cancel your debt, but to pay for your debt. Paul is telling us that of, of all the features of the believer's new wardrobe, the most important is love. It's like a belt that holds it all together. And so a failure to be patient, forbearing, forgiving toward one another is rooted in a lack of true biblical love. Well, beloved, I don't know if you expected this list to be as rich as it is. I'm going to talk to you about that next time. Um, but this is, this is wonderful. 
rich stuff. We need this. And you know what? The world needs it, and they're not going to get it any other way than through the gospel. We've got to be faithful to tell, not just be nice, but to talk to people about what, who Jesus is and what he offers sinners like me and like you. And so the point of all of this, beloved, is simply this, that the soul-satisfying grace of God should make us gracious toward one another. The soul-satisfying grace of God should make us gracious to one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you that your grace really is this powerful. And we see it, Lord, we see it in the unity that you have created here at Calvary Bible Church. It's not a perfect unity, but it's one that is often fought for and pursued hotly. So I praise you for that. praise you for the love that is evident here. I praise you, Father, that I so often see the love of Christ controlling people's attitudes and words, choices. And so may it be for all of us, Lord, and when people see us, they will know that we are followers of Christ because of our love for them, our patience with them, our forbearance with them, our forgiveness of them. And may they, Father, in turn, repent and believe and find the joy that we have found, the treasure in the field, who is none other than Christ, and be willing to sell everything by that field, to have that treasure. And Father, I pray that we would joyfully worship you and serve you because of it. In the name of our Savior, Jesus.